in three, two, one. Events move quickly in the world of US foreign policy, and it's easy to miss certain developments amid the deluge of information. With our main podcast series, we look to go in-depth into the state of US ties with certain countries. But sometimes, it's also good to zoom in on specific issues and bring everyone on the same page. That's where we come in. Welcome to Ask USP, a series of short episodes to explain noteworthy developments in US foreign policy and related issues. Get yourself comfortable, and we'll get you up to speed. Hi everyone, season's greetings, and welcome to the sixth episode of Ask USP, a short podcast series by the US program at the S. Rajaratnam School of International Studies, or RSIS. My name is Kevin, I'm an Associate Research Fellow at USP, and I'll be your host for this episode. To recap, the Ask USP podcasts are explainer episodes in which we bring everyone up to speed on pertinent regional issues, things that deserve their own spotlight, but might be overlooked in the main podcast line due to time constraints or relevance to the broader episode topic. For this episode, we're going to look at something a little different. A study trip that an RSIS delegation, including yours truly, made to Washington, D.C. in early November 2023. We met with experts from the Center for Naval Analyses, Center for Strategic and International Studies, Stimson Center, American Enterprise Institute, Brookings Institution, Wilson Center, and the Center for a New American Security. Given that the trip was made the week before the APEC summit, the prospect of a meeting between US President Joe Biden and Chinese President Xi Jinping was a popular topic of discussion. We also discussed a range of other topics, including US-China competition, China's economic slowdown, the direction and coherence of US policy on Southeast Asia, and the implications of the Israel-Palestine war on US foreign policy. Joining us to recount our trip to DC is Dr. Sindapal Singh, Senior Fellow and Assistant Director of the Institute of Defense and Strategic Studies at RSIS. Dr. Sindapal was the leader of the RSIS delegation, and his research interests include the international relations of South Asia with a special focus on Indian foreign policy, the geopolitics of the Indian Ocean region, and India-Southeast Asia relations. Hi, Sinder. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Kevin. Pleasure to be here. When we were in D.C., what do you feel the mood was like over the trajectory of U.S.-China ties? What topics were the experts we met most interested in discussing with us? In terms of mood, I think there was a near-complete consensus in D.C. that the state of U.S.-China relations had deteriorated to a level where there were very few people who were optimistic about any kind of significant improvement in the relationship. Hmm. In terms of the kind of topics that they were interested to talk to us about, I think there were two. One was they were very keen to get our impressions about the interactions that we have had with Chinese academics, both in Beijing and also in Singapore. And the second topic they were very interested to get our views on were what were Southeast Asian views about US-China competition and what would happen in certain kind of eventualities. Hmm. I think I got that sense too. There was a sense that more dialogue is always a good thing, but this would only change the tone and pacing of developments between the two powers, as opposed to changing the fundamentally competitive nature of their relationship at this point. Of these issues that they really wanted to talk to us about then, I think Taiwan was definitely one of those issues, right? Yes, Taiwan uh, definitely came up for discussion. Yeah, and there, there was a sense that this was prior to the APEC summit. Beijing wanted help from President Biden in managing the Taiwan issue. 
But of course, there was also expectation that Beijing would be disappointed if they wanted too much from Washington with regards to help with Taiwan, right? I think the sense was that if the Chinese government wanted Biden's help on trying to manage the Taiwan issue in terms of America maybe lowering down the language or rhetoric, I think most of the people we met in DC told us that the Chinese would be disappointed because first, as a function of domestic politics, uh, the Biden administration cannot be seen to be stepping away from the Taiwan issue in terms of the rhetoric. And the American, the US administration sees very little benefit in actually trying to give any kind of concessions on, on Taiwan at this point of time. I remember that two of the big things that the American side wanted from China prior to the meeting was first the military to military communications, which they got, as well as a fentanyl. The fentanyl issue was uh, highlighted by quite a few of the analysts that we met. Frankly, I was a bit surprised at the amount of times the fentanyl issue was raised. It seemed to be an issue that nearly everyone we spoke to thought was very important. And I think we can understand why as they were explained to us that in the US, the, the kind of opioid issue is a major domestic politics issue. And I think for that reason, the fentanyl issue was at the forefront of, I think, the agenda that people in DC said the Biden administration would put in terms of trying to talk to China about certain things where they can cooperate on or, or talk about at least. Hmm, that's true. During the trip, what was your general perception then of the state of US-Southeast Asia ties? Broadly, I think I can put into three kind of three key points. The first was there's a general kind of frustration at ties with Southeast Asia, largely frustration directed at Southeast Asian states mm. that somehow the Biden administration's overtures, Biden administration's kind of moves have not been reciprocated. Mm. Uh, that, was, that was one. Uh, number two, the mood was also that it probably better to move bilaterally with some countries rather than Southeast Asia or ASEAN as a whole yeah. because there was, for them, significant degree of variance in terms of how different Southeast Asian countries were responding to US overtures. And I think the, the third point was, I think they, they understood that the economic dimension was key for Southeast Asian countries in terms of American kind of economic investment, American economic presence in Southeast Asia. And I think that message, I think they got, so these were the three key kind of points, I think that we got across in terms of how they thought the US-Southeast Asia's relationship was at the moment. That's true. The people we met really said that there have been a lot of improvements in the relationship between the US and Philippines, US and Vietnam, but with the rest of the region, maybe not as much. And I take your point about the whole economic relationship thing because this was prior to APEC. So the announcement regarding the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, IPEF, hadn't come out yet and we didn't know that the trade pillar basically collapsed. It's still quite disheartening that this is the best that the US could have done and it, it still they still couldn't complete it. To just to elaborate on your point, I think that one of the we, we got a general sense first that there was a bipartisan consensus within DC that any kind of trade deal was not going to happen. Mm. Uh, that was one. And although a lot of our interlocutors told us that the right thing to do was actually to promote free trade. Somehow in the DC system now, it's not possible. It's not going to happen. Mm. Uh, and I think number two, they also agreed that the IPEF needed more content 
especially economic content, it was a very nice banner. And even they understood that there needed to be more, more content, economic content in terms of what Southeast Asian countries can take away from it. And at that moment, they thought it wasn't enough. Yeah, that's right. Because it was seen as very nebulous, very fluffy, right? As opposed to a, an agreement, real substance. There was one frustrated analyst. He kind of put it that, well, smart people know better when it comes to trade, but they're not in charge. Yeah, we, we were there and we said that. And I think the related point to this, which I think I found really, really interesting, is when we asked one of several people we met in DC, that intuitively speaking, Americans will get hurt in a kind of trade war with China because in the end, you will end up paying higher prices for stuff from China. Right? Mm. And somehow we thought from the outside, we thought that would act as some kind of buffer to push American administration to, to find some way in which you can reduce this level of trade war. But then we were told that for various reasons, there is strong grassroots support for the kind of sanctions that are put on Chinese mm. products, which for me was very surprising. Yes, that's right. I believe they told us that China had seriously misread the US public on the issue of trade ties. They thought that, oh, you know, if we put it in a little pressure, they will in turn put electoral pressure on their government to change their policies. But the reverse happened. Despite the pressure, the farmers in those Midwestern states said that, fine, we're fine with this as long as you get back at China for their unfair trade practices, right? Exactly. There were others like me who also thought that that logic would work. But, you know, counterintuitively, as one of some of them in DC explained to us, the farmers who you thought would push back uh, somehow rallied behind the cause. That this was their part to play in, you know, that China was using unethical trade tactics, dumping, etc. So I thought that was very, very interesting. I think related to that was also the fact that a lot of these areas where the farmers who depend on selling products to China are actually in red states. Hmm. And, and that was even more interesting that they rallied behind the policy of if we want to go strong on China in terms of the trade sanctions we should carry on. Again, the strange thing for me is the Republican Party is the party of free trade. <laughs> and yet, very strong supporters who depend on trade are also rallying behind. So I think maybe China misread, but I think it's not only China. I think someone like me as well, I thought I was quite surprised, but that was what we were told. One thing that stood out to me, though, was that a lot of analysts, while they commented on the progress of the Israel-Gaza war, there was a bit of a hesitation to offer any more intensive insights into what they thought, how they thought the war would play out, especially in terms of its impact on US foreign policy. They seemed to want to wait to see how things would go first, right? Yeah, that's the, that's the sense I got. Uh, and related to that, it was made clear to us mm. that Biden's got a very difficult job because within the Democrat Party, there's been a lot of pressure mm. to try to rein Israel in. Yes, yeah. There is also a lot of pressure on Biden to stand by one of its you know, oldest and strongest ally, Israel. So I think at that point, we already were told that Biden's got a very difficult balancing game. Within the party, he's got pressure, mm. but he needs to support Israel we see that being played out even now that the, the Biden administration is trying to balance these two imperatives. That's right. It's a very delicate balancing game. If anything, the researchers or the analysts were more willing to comment about China's perspectives on the conflict. They felt that sometimes, or some of them felt that China might have bitten off more than it can chew. The first kind of analysis that came out was that China was being opportunistic. They reminded us that China has had close economic ties with Israel for a long time. 
and it actually surprised some of the people we met. And they said, well, firstly, they thought China was being opportunistic in this search to lead the global south. Maybe China, they, India, in their view, estimated that this would be a, a policy that would cost them too much. But then, like you mentioned, uh, others said that maybe they, maybe they know more than they can chew hmm. because of the disjuncture in the Arab streets between the elites and the populace. The populace here showing very strong support for the Palestinian, while the elites or the leaders in this country are wanting not to get embroiled into a larger conflict in the Middle East between what's happening between Hamas and Israel. Although mentioning India, I think during our trip, we also got this general sense that there was a lot of optimism surrounding the US relationship with India as well, right? Yeah, there definitely was. And I think in, in within DC, another, another point of consensus, I think, has been that across the political spectrum, ties with India are seen very positively. Everyone is very upbeat about the, the ties with India. When we quizzed one or two of them about India's kind of lukewarm response on the Ukraine crisis, they told us that this will not affect the overall relationship. You wouldn't mm. put a dent in the relationship because the relationship was more, more strategic in terms of dealing with China. And also, there was a sense that people understood India's kind of structural limitations when it came to dealing with the, at least publicly saying things on the, on the Ukraine-Russia crisis. That's true. And there was also an acknowledgement that India was kind of frustrated with Beijing as well because of Beijing's insistence on interpreting its ties with New Delhi through the prism of its ties with Washington, right? In our conversations with people in DC, what became clear was that the Indian frustration with China has been for at least the last nine years, eight, nine years, has been that the Indians seem to believe that any independent move they make doesn't make a difference to Chinese behavior towards India and that everything India does is seen either through the prism of US-China relations or India-US relations. So yeah. I think that's a huge amount of frustration in the Indian government about how they can try to change things with China. I see, I see. Although it's also partly true that the Biden administration is a little guilty of viewing its ties with India through the prism of its ties with China as well, right? I think that's true as well. And I think that the, there's another frustration that the Indians feel that they don't want US-India relations to just be viewed through India-China lens. They, I think the Indians want India-US relationship to at least publicly be articulated in independent terms hmm. uh, rather than everything being Indian reaction towards their relationship with China. So overall, based on our trip, would you say there were any specific messages that the experts that we met really wanted to convey to us? I can think of one key and maybe one less key, two key mm. points. I think the key point was that everybody agreed that there's not going to be any significant improvement in US-China ties in the near future. True, true. Talking was important, dialogue was important, but dialogue was just, as I say, to put a flaw to the relationship. So it doesn't sink further to a point where there's a chance of hostilities hmm. happening. But I think everyone agreed that the US-China ties have come to a point where the improvement, if any, is not going to be drastic because the American administration, and this is bipartisan, see US-China relationship as a competition. And hmm. therefore, the US needs to compete with China. In fact, there's one small anecdote. I don't know whether you remember where someone said that there was a time in the US you would definitely be able to find one or two people 
will be able to say something optimistic about the US-China oh, yeah, relationship. Yeah, right. And he said, you will be very hard-pressed now to find anyone who will say that. Yeah, even one, right? Yeah, and then I think the second was, they told us that outsiders are always very concerned about how US domestic politics affects US foreign policy towards the outside world. And, mm. and, and they took, and they understood why outsiders like us in Southeast Asia worry. But they, many of them, assuage our concerns, firstly, about any significant change in US foreign policy. And also when we talked about the US elections, yeah, uh, many election. were saying that although the polls show that it's quite tight, many of them were relatively confident that a second Trump term was not going to happen. Yeah, that's uh, right. Which was uh, for me a bit surprising given their level of confidence. Yeah, despite the, the really bad poll numbers for Biden right now. But hey, at least the confidence was a little bit reassuring. At yes, time, yes. It was. And I, I think some of the reasons were, were given. I think someone said that I think the thing that moved the needle in favor of Biden was this issue over abortion. Ah, yes. And how even in solid red states where referendums were held on women access to abortion and contraception, I think that was very clear that the vote was to allow continuing access to abortion for people in, in even in these red states. Yeah, I got that sense too. And another message I think I got from the trip as well was that they really wanted to convey that the, the pivot to the Indo-Pacific is still going on and is still strong because there were some concerns about the whole supplementary budget request, the $106 billion one that only included, I think, $2 billion for the Indo-Pacific. That was characterized as a supplementary request. So it was on top of what was already requested, right? I think, yeah, exactly. Nearly everyone we met went to great lengths to assure us that the Indo-Pacific tilt, if you want to call it, policy is still very important. And under the Biden administration, it is one of the key planks of US foreign policy. They also pointed out to us how the Ukraine war hasn't distracted the US mm. from the Indo-Pacific. And I think someone told us no troops have been moved on the theater and therefore the Ukraine war for what we were told was it's a separate enterprise. While the Indo-Pacific remains, is the key American policy and strategy. And so therefore, the Indo-Pacific strategy, Indo-Pacific pivot, is something that will carry on under Biden. And like you say, although it's the figure seems small, this is on top of what was already being pledged. Mm. Are there any final words that you'd like to leave the audience with then? One other interesting point that we got was some conversation came up about Indonesia. Oh yeah, the which, yeah, there was one about what Indonesia will do in terms of a contingency in the Taiwan Straits. I, I got a sense <clears throat> that many people we met in DC seemed quite unsure about what exactly Indonesia's posture is mm. and is going to be. And some of them sort of alluded to the fact that this might be the result of the upcoming presidential election. Campaign mode starts long before. Oh, yeah. And some were confident that once the dust had settled, then maybe you get a clearer kind of articulation of what Indonesia wants and what it would do in terms of US policy towards the Indo-Pacific and also in terms of any kind of contingency in the Taiwan Straits or even in the South China Sea. 
That's true. I think there was a remark then that Indonesian foreign policy has a very transactional nature. The presidential election won't change that. It works quite well with Chinese engagement, but when it comes to engaging with Washington, I think the expectations are a bit higher. So there's more room for disappointment there. Yeah, I think you're right. I think frustration stemmed from the, the perception that it's very hard to, to build durable habits of cooperation and when they perceive the Indonesian outlook to be largely transactional, issue to issue, year to year. And so durable habits of cooperation are harder to forge. So from the US side, this is something that was seen as undesirable. If you want to build longer patterns, longer patterns of cooperation, mm-hmm. where you've got cooperation fixed in, locked in institutionally, they feel that the Chinese benefit more from this because the transactional nature of the Indonesian response helps them more than helps the US. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see, I see. Well, thank you for your time, Cinder. And thank you everyone for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If there are any questions or topics that you'd like us to tackle in future episodes, feel free to reach out to us on social media, such as our Twitter page or through email. Until next time, happy holidays and we'll see you next year.